Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the war that never ends. The war on terror's permanence should be remarkable. It should be an outrage. But it is precisely because the war has become permanent that it has long since been rendered normal that the U.S. is engaged in a state of continuous and cascading global conflict against an enemy so undefined that most any new threat can fit the bill. And indeed, as warfare spreads, new enemies to fight constantly emerge. Obviously, the war on terror has led to widespread global chaos and bloodshed. It has also, however, become one of the most basic features of American social and political life. Yet, what's weird and incredibly dangerous is that there's little public discussion over how profoundly permanent war has warped this country over its 16 long years of existence, and the key role that it, along with other factors, has played in making Donald Trump a reality. Today, my guest is Andrew Basevich. Basevich grew up in Indiana, graduated from West Point and Princeton, served in the Army, became an academic, and is now a writer. He is the author, co-author, or editor of a dozen books, among them American Empire, The New American Militarism, The Limits of Power, Washington Rules, Breach of Trust, and, most recently, America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. Over the past few weeks, the possibility of Trump provoking a nuclear war with North Korea has understandably garnered widespread attention, as a conflict much older than the current global terror war has dangerously escalated. We're going to talk about that too, and I'll have an episode dedicated to Korea coming up soon. Andrew Basevich, welcome to The Dig. Well, thank you. The war on terror now seems to be a forever war. Um, Before we get into the politics of it, can you lay out the current state of American global warfare, where exactly our country is at war and how it's going? Well, it's not going well. I mean, it's not going well in the sense that uh, if if we would uh, somewhat arbitrarily uh, date the beginning of the war on terror from September of 2001. Uh, since that time, we haven't won anywhere. Uh, if if one means if win means to uh, achieve uh, in some conclusive form your political objectives. I think I would describe the the landscape of the war divided into two uh, categories, or the big wars and the little wars. Uh, And there are three big wars. They're not they're not big, by the way, in in comparison to the world wars of the 20th century. They're not even big in comparison to uh, Korea and Vietnam. Uh, But they're big enough, and they're certainly expensive enough. I think in the category of the big wars, there are three. The first is the Afghanistan war, uh, which is now the longest war in our country. The second is the Iraq war, launched in 2003 by George W. Bush, suspended, in a sense, uh, in 2011, 
by Barack Obama and then resumed uh, in 2014 by, uh, as a result of the rise of ISIS. And then the third big war in that, I think, uh, is the uh, Syrian war, this, the, the war in Syria, which from, from our point of view is a war against ISIS, although of course it's simultaneously a Syrian uh, civil war and in some senses a proxy war. That's uh, drawn in the entire region. Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So those are the big wars. Uh, there are little wars. Uh, there's a little war in Yemen. Uh, there's one in Somalia. Uh, on and off, I think on again lately, uh, is one in the southern uh, Philippines, uh, in the part of the Philippines uh, where the, there is a, a, a Muslim, substantial Muslim population. Uh, we might add to that list places like Libya and, and Pakistan, uh, where there is occasional U.S. military activity. Uh, nations in Western Africa, where there is, uh, I think, an underreported level of U.S. military activity primarily directed against uh, Islamist entities. So you, you total all that up, and it's a lot of different places. Yeah, and I think most Americans would, would not be able to correctly answer the number of countries we're at war with, which means that's a whole hell of a lot of countries. Yeah, I, I think you are right on both counts. Um, few people really have an appreciation for the uh, expanse of the activity, and, uh, and, and it is a whole hell of a lot of, lot of countries. And, and, and then there's the North Korean conflict, which is you know much older than the current war on terror, but has recently roared back into the headlines with the threat of Trump uh, walking us into a nuclear conflict. True, true enough, although I would not put that in the same category. It seems to me that uh, if, if the war on terror, I mean, the, the, the term is, is imprecise and inappropriate. Um, but the war on terror, it seems to me, uh, it refers to uh, U.S. and allied uh, military efforts directed against uh, r- radical jihadists. That is to say that uh, entities in the and individuals, uh, mostly in the Islamic world, although not necessarily, who are intent on using violence in order to fulfill their political agenda, uh, the, the one one part of which is to uh, eject the West uh, from from the from the Islamic world, and and I would see the uh, crisis with North Korea as being something quite distinct in its origins and in its substance, although. If, if the point we're trying to make is that the United States is mired down in all kinds of simultaneous uh, military crises, and in that sense, I suppose you could uh, include Korea. But the Korean conflict is, is sort of this outlier that's a conflict that's still with us uh, from over more than half a century Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a leftover. It's, it's part of the uh, legacy of the Cold War. Uh, it's a, it's, an, it's a, uh, a, an issue unresolved. Uh, from the Cold War, and and one that for which there is no easy solution. If there were an easy solution, somebody would have figured it out long ago. So um, you 
made the point that these wars are not going so well, and that's pretty obvious to most listeners. But if you could unpack that a little and explain just how horribly things have gone over the last 16 years. I think the place to begin is to recall uh, the evaluation of U.S. military power that uh, was commonly accepted in the wake of the Cold War, particularly, I think, in in the wake of, of the Gulf War of 1991, perceived as a great historic victory, uh, more than that, perceived as evidence that the United States had achieved something like military supremacy, not, not simply military superiority. It, it, in, in 1991, persuaded many observers, and I think it particularly persuaded uh, people in Washington who were concerned with national security policy, persuaded them that we had war figured out. Uh, and, and that conclusion created an atmosphere within the national security community that led to a far greater willingness to actually put American military power to work. During the Cold War, the idea had been, not not fully adhered to, but the basically idea had been that uh, the principal purpose of American military power was to, to, to deter, to contain, to defend. That is, the idea was that we would hold, we would husband American military power. After the Cold War and after Operation Desert Storm, uh, that thinking seemed obsolete. And the new thinking was, well, what the heck? If we, are, if we have this enormous military capacity, let's put it to work to solve problems. Uh, and that led in the 1990s, so a decade, really, before 9-11, that led in the 1990s to a greater willingness to intervene. You know, so we had uh, George Herbert Walker Bush sending U.S. forces into Somalia in 1992. Uh, we had uh, uh, Bill Clinton sending U.S. forces into the Balkans, into Haiti, uh, using uh, American air power uh, against Iraq, uh, you know, bombing a putative chemical weapons factory uh, in, in Khartoum, uh, attacking... Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, again, before 9-11, uh, with, with cruise missiles. So the far greater willingness to use American military power, and that was the mindset that had come to prevail in Washington by 9-11. 9-11 then adds an extra motivation, uh, became imperative now, it seemed, uh, to use American military power to solve what was now perceived to be a direct and uh, existential, even, uh, threat to the United States, hence the post-9-11 wars. And my, my point here is that these are wars undertaken with an expectation that the greatest military power the world has ever seen is going to win. But we don't win. So here we are all these years later with wars that do seem to be forever wars, with wars that have now are now some total of the cost is now in the trillions of dollars. Quite considerable American losses when you look at the numbers of dead and wounded, even greater numbers of of people who are not Americans, dead, hurt, displaced. And, and none of it has produced 
the results that we expected at the outset. And all this, this seems to me points to two conclusions. Number one uh, is that uh, we have not achieved military supremacy. As good as our forces are, they're not good enough to, to, to do what we expect them to do. And number two, that there's some, something fundamentally distorted, perversely distorted, about the way people in Washington, D.C. have come to think about the role of military power as an instrument of international politics. You've written really astutely on just that point. You wrote, Americans misperceive the world and their role in determining its evolution. The bedrock assumption to which all of official Washington adheres, liberal Democrats no less than conservative Republicans, is that the United States itself constitutes the axis around which history turns. We define the future. Our actions determine its course. And you just laid out a few minutes ago how this sense of almost post-Cold War utopian thinking in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that with the Soviet Union gone, that the U.S. had total military supremacy and both the right and duty to take police actions around the world, how that laid the groundwork for the forever wars that began after 9-11, but how 16 years after the war on terror began, after so much disaster, how does the political establishment, along with so many Americans, still remain wedded to this idea that we can bend the world and history to our will? Well, I mean, uh, two points. I think the first one is that this this sense of chosenness, uh, this belief that we have a unique mission uh, to uh, to bring the world to its intended condition uh, certainly predates the present moment. I mean, I think that uh, I would agree with others who uh, trace that kind of thinking all the way back to the founding of the Anglo-American colonies and John Winthrop's famous sermon uh, summoning his his founders or his followers as they're about to create the Massachusetts Bay Colony to, to, to form a city upon a hill, that they are called upon by God uh, to form this city upon a hill, and that this, and this city upon a hill will have a, uh, a, a, a function that can only be understood in terms of determining the, de- the destiny of, of humankind. Now, for the first 150 uh, or so years of, of, of U.S. history, uh, the, the tendency was to uh, see the role of the United States in fulfilling this mission as serving, in terms of serving as an exemplar. Things began to change in 1898. Uh, the change was reinforced by uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, decision to intervene in the European War of 1914-1918, claiming that we were going to uh, make the world safe for democracy. That didn't work out. Uh, that type of thinking came charging back in World War II and was reinforced by the by the Cold War, so that the the notion that we should simply convert others by serving as an example of what freedom should represent that was uh, that 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 type of thinking uh, by 
by the time I was born in 1947, was, was viewed as retrograde. And the new thinking emphasized the fact that the United States was going to have to assert itself in order to fulfill its mission. In some senses, that was kind of held in check by uh, the Cold War, by the fact that there was this uh, great adversary, this great nuclear-armed adversary, the Soviet Union. But, the, but, but, but that inclination gets released then by the end of the Cold War, and we have seen the way it, it plays out. Now, the second point, and this relates to, well, why the heck, how, how can people persist in this thinking uh, in light of the actual experience of the past uh, 25 years or so, I think the answer to that, at least in part, has to do with the way we have decided to constitute the American military system. When I say military system, I'm referring to the way that we choose to, uh, to, to fill the armed forces of the United States. And, the and, all-volunteer and the, army. Correct. And the subsequent relationship between the military uh, and the American and the American people, and the relationship is one that today I think is uh, fraught with uh, dishonesty. I mean, uh, on the surface, we all profess to support the troops. We love the troops. We hold the troops in in high regard. Uh, but the troops are roughly one percent of the entire population, uh, and as a practical matter. Uh, the other 99%, most of the other 99% don't much care about where the troops are, what they're doing, or whether or not there is anything like success anywhere in the offing. Uh, so that, I think, has undercut uh, any inclination to scrutinize uh, what the recent American military experience has been all about, and to demand uh, accountability. The transformation of the military as an institution, um, I think, is related to another point that you've made, which is that there's a new aesthetic of war that that has emerged during the war on terror. Well, I'm not sure that that point uh holds much validity anymore. I, I mean, I wrote about that back in my militarism book, uh, which was published, I sort of wrote it like in 2003, 2004, and it came out, if I'm remembering correctly, in, in 2005. And at that time, uh, at least in terms of the popular understanding of war, uh, there was a tendency to believe that the advent of advanced technology had sanitized war. And the old aesthetic, the, the, the aesthetic of war that existed when I was a, a young boy growing up was an aesthetic, I think, that derived in a in very large measure from, from the literary interpretation of World War I. You know, the, the trench warfare, Western Front, war is ugly, War consumes societies, uh, at least to some degree. The experience of World War II reinforced that, uh, as did Korea. Just the senseless human-level cruelty right, of, as, of as people. As did Korea and, and Vietnam. But, but when once you get to uh, Desert Storm in 1991, it's all precision weapons, you know, clean kills, 
low levels of U.S. casualties, a battlefield that seemingly is dominated by uh, glitzy technology, and I smart think bombs. I think that smart bombs. I think I think that kind of thinking was very much in evidence uh, in the early post nine eleven conflicts. But quite frankly, the actual experience, in particular of Iraq uh, after the fall of Saddam Hussein, I think uh, tended to wean Americans away from their belief in in sanitized warfare. I mean, what what happened at uh, Fallujah, what happened at uh, Abu Ghraib, uh, you know, <laughs> that that wasn't sanitized. And I, and I think that today that that notion has pretty much been discredited. I take your point, but I but I but I do think that it still lives on in the sense of kind of remote control warfare via drones and. Um, Brian Williams on TV, uh, you know, singing Trump's Trump's praises for launching the missiles at Syria. I think you're I think you're I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, there there still is somehow that hope that uh, that there is a technological um, fix that can clean up war. Uh, And 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 I think that, uh, uh, well, you've made the case. Well, my my follow-up to that is is something that seems incredibly bizarre and dangerous to me about the war on terror is how profoundly it has reshaped the entire world in a really bloody, destructive way, but also um, become sort of a bedrock premise of, of American society and politics, but one that people don't talk about very much. I mean, we talk about... Um, we talk about ISIS, um, not in a very productive way, I would argue, but there's this sense in which with the war on terror becoming normalized, it's just sort of become the unremarked upon backdrop of American politics. What is the currently acceptable range of opinions on foreign policy and, and military policy in, in U.S. politics? And do you think it's possible to carve out an alternative? Well, I mean, the, uh, the mainstream of each of the parties, uh, I think, has been uh, affected by militarism, has embraced militarism. You know, nobody's going to say that out loud. Nancy Pelosi's not going to stand up and say, I'm a militarist. Uh, but but there are certain <laughs> premises about U.S. military policy, levels of spending, the uh, emphasis on the military instrument to be used for power projection rather than for defense, the the commitment to maintaining a global uh, presence, uh, all of these uh, assumptions uh, about the foundation of U.S. national security policy are unquestioned. Uh, they're not questioned. In so we don't have, we don't have a you know a war party and a peace party. Uh, we have we have two parties that basically accept the framework of U.S. national security, accept the posture, the U.S. national security posture that evolved in the Cold War and that we've maintained since the Cold War. So so that it seems to me is 
the biggest, uh, in, in terms of our politics, that's the biggest barrier to having any uh, serious debate over over our over our military policies. Uh, you know, we have a two-party system, and both parties, both of the main parties, buy into what has become the the status quo. Uh, so, external to politics, there's a pretty pretty lively debate. You know, on if you're on the right and you regularly read, let's say, the American Conservative magazine. If you're on the left and you regularly read the Nation magazine, I just cite those as two examples. I think there could be many other publications and online, uh, uh, you know, undertakings. There's a very lively debate, uh, but it doesn't ha- have any particular effect on our politics because the two parties are st- st- stuck where they are. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of The Dig, which you probably already knew because you're listening to The Dig. Anyhow, I need your support to keep this going, so please go to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Look up The Dig and make a contribution. Even a little bit helps, but a lot helps a little bit more. Either way, thank you, and back to the show. There's certainly a lot of of, of cynicism and opposition to the war on terror, but there's not only is there not a peace party amongst the two major parties, but there's not really an anti-war movement, at least not till, I don't know, maybe since, um, since maybe 2005 or 2006. And I think one... One reason is because the war on terror has this sort of path dependency um, where it was one thing to oppose the invasion of Afghanistan, which a few people did, or the invasion of Iraq, which a lot of people did. And I think it's another thing entirely to build a protest movement that responds to these cascading series of crises and, and wars um, that are constantly creating fresh enemies, most well, recently, I think, of course, I, yeah, uh, and, ISIS. And, and I would add to that. Uh, that it's very difficult to develop any kind of a viable anti-war movement when U.S. casualties are low. Uh, it, it's it's intriguing that uh, you know most Americans really don't care how much we're spending on these wars. That the bills just keep stacking up, and they get paid, and the debt grows, and we work on the assumption that someday, somewhere out there in the future, somebody's going to figure out uh, how, to, how to deal with all that. Uh, some number of Americans pay attention to uh, civilian casualties, collateral damage, uh, refugees, and the like. But uh, to tell you the truth, uh, not enough to uh, not enough to make a difference. When Americans pay attention is when there is a large number of Americans who are getting killed. So when you talk about uh, opposition to the Iraq War back in you know 2005, 2006, leading up to the congressional elections of 2006, with which the Democrats uh, won. That's back when the casualty levels were very high, or at least maybe not very high compared to Vietnam and Korea, but still high enough that people noticed. So one of the things that has occurred uh, 
basically since President Obama uh, took office uh, is that U.S. casualties have been kept low. Therefore, uh, protest uh, has been uh, has diminished, uh, even though having low casualties doesn't mean that the wars have been conducted any more effectively than they were back when George W. Bush uh, was in office. Well, per- perhaps this is the real um, innovation on the um, war makers part in terms of the aesthetics of, of, of war is not so much that there are smart bombs or precision missiles that are uh, sparing civilian lives overseas, but that we've figured out a way to wage global war that doesn't kill that many Americans. Um, think, and that's depressing that's, that's, to think that. <laughs> yeah, I think, but I think, I think the point is a very good point. Uh, but, but the related point is, uh, the one I tried to make a second ago is, that doesn't mean that the wars are being waged effectively. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, it is, I think, uh, crucially important. I mean, wars are bad things. But I'm not a pacifist, and I think that there are occasions when it's necessary to use force. I would argue strongly those occasions should be rare and they should be undertaken uh, only when really important interests are are at risk. But there are times uh, when when it may be necessary to go to war and and when that is the case, it seems to me there should be uh, intense interest in ensuring that the sacrifices that are made and the sacrifices that are exacted uh, on the other side are purposeful, that what we're doing uh, uh, fulfills the political objectives that made the war necessary in the first place. And one of the things that just drives me crazy uh, is that we find ourselves in this situation where the wars go on and on and on and on. We don't achieve our political purposes. The bills pile up, and it's, nobody pays attention. Not nobody, but I mean, uh, not enough people pay attention to make a difference. I think I think that it's uh, um, it's not just stupid, but I think it's immoral. It. It, it is this odd, I think, um, thing going on where people, where there's not a lot of public um, debate, at least within mainstream politics, over the war on terror. There might be a debate over one conflict or another, but the idea of actually ending the war on terror full stop is not discussed so much. But at the same time, it seems to me that that the war on terror has in in, in subtle but extremely powerful ways really transformed American politics in a way that I think really played a big role in making President Trump um, a possibility. Looking back to 2001, 2002, 2003, the war on terror, as as odd as it is to say this, was really guided by these these idealist utopian um, neo- principles held by neoconservatives that the U.S. was going to transform the world and and bring democracy to the mm-hmm dark corners governed by dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And as everything really went to shit, um, I think this profound cynicism took hold when the neoconservative dream turned into a nightmare. 
I don't know if and, it's cynicism or just simply um, confusion leading to sort of an unwillingness to confront the reality that is. I mean, I want to agree with the point you made. As much as the, the neoconservatives in, in some senses were uh, crazy, uh, but the one thing you can say in their favor is that they had a they had a vision after 9/11. You described it. We're going to use overwhelming military power. We're going to transform large parts of the Islamic world. We're going to bring freedom and democracy. And once we've done that, we won't have to be worried about attack being attacked from that quarter. That's what they thought that they would achieve by, in particular, through the war in Iraq. It was it was lunacy, but at least there was some logic uh, to the wars that they proposed. Once they failed, uh, that logic went away and has never been replaced. And and I and and again, I think you are correct in 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 seeing in, in some at least partial way an explanation for Donald Trump's political success because I mean what 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 was Hillary Clinton's position on this ongoing war on terror uh it, she certainly didn't offer a path to victory to bringing the wars to an end her own record uh as a quote unquote liberal interventionist uh suggested that had she been elected president, we were going to get simply more of the same. The wars would simply continue. And Trump, the candidate, and I emphasize distinguishing him from Trump, the president, Trump, the candidate, was the guy who said out loud, no, it's all stupid. These, these wars are stupid. Elect me president, we're not going to have any more stupid wars. And that's not what he's done. Uh, but but I, I do believe that among the factors that persuaded large numbers of our fellow citizens to vote into office somebody who is manifestly unqualified to be president is because at least he had the wit to recognize that U.S. national security policy, particularly since 9-11, has gone off the rails. Uh, and he was willing to say that out loud. And he did so in a way that was more... Um, well, it was distinctly Trumpian, but it was also a anti a critique of the war that was nationalist rather than anti-imperialist in the sense that he said, well, we shouldn't have invaded Iraq, but since we did, we should have taken their oil. Yes, There's something right. very powerful yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That somehow or other, this needs to work to our benefit. Uh, again, and, and I should emphasize, it seems to me that Whatever, whether or not Trump believed any of that or understood any of that, uh, that is to say what he said as a candidate, that's not what we have gotten from President Trump. What we've gotten from President Trump is uh, aimlessness, you know, impulsiveness, decisions made or, or not made uh, without any reference to uh, principles. Again, draw the contrast between Trump and the neoconservatives. At least they could fashion an argument as to how there was some purpose to be served uh, by undertaking the exertions that they proposed from Trump, from President Trump, uh, we get no rationale whatsoever, and I don't believe we actually have anything that qualifies as a 
policy today. A listener, Sean McBride, um, called in a question that I'm going to summarize for you about Trump's approach, um, specifically with regard to Afghanistan, where apparently the potential profits um, from mining in that country have really captured his interests. What do you make of that? And do you think if he goes through with it, that that will provide an opportunity for anti-war activists to highlight how fundamentally bankrupt? I don't take that seriously. I mean, I, I, this is something that Trump, you know, read online or <laughs> saw on a briefing slide or whatever. It's something that captured his his fancy for a minute and a half. I mean, I mean, it seems to me that one of the uh, trademarks of his presidency is this uh, grabbing hold of some little factoid uh, that then becomes a subject of a tweet uh, and then and therefore seems to be uh, an indication of an emergent policy. And a day and a half later, that's all forgotten. Uh, so I, I, I honestly don't know that I would take all that notion seriously. You you recently wrote a piece in the London Review of Books about President Truman's uh, firing of um, General Douglas MacArthur and how that might serve to illuminate the tensions inherent in a democratic country running a global empire. Um, Trump obviously has packed his administration with generals and seems to have um, quite a soft spot for military brass, even just on a very basic personality, attitude, tough guy. Um, it's his type of, of, of masculinity. Um, what does his love affair with generals tell us, or what should it tell us about, about foreign policy, about his foreign policy? Well, I, I'm not sure I know. I mean, it, there you described it well, I think, that for whatever peculiar reasons, he seems to have an affinity for for generals. Uh, you know, what what is it about generals that he likes? Um, their manner, their posture, their willingness to say yes sir and no sir. Uh, I don't know. It's I mean again, it's we compare Trump the candidate with Trump the the president and. We see contradictions. As a candidate, he famously claimed to know more than all the generals who he who were presiding over American wars, who he derided as incompetent. So, how you get from that to where we have, uh, you know, Kelly and 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 Mattis and McMaster uh, being sort of the top dogs of the administration, is is somewhat uh, baffling uh, to me. Uh, I think, among other things, it suggests an absence of any sensitivity to uh, one of the core traditions of U.S. civil-military relations, which is to emphasize uh, civilian primacy. Now, as I suggested in that essay that you referred to, the reality of civilian control tends to be uh, complicated. Uh, But there at least has been, and it's not a trivial thing, there at least has been 
lip service paid to the principle of civilian control by all parties uh, pretty consistently uh, since MacArthur's confrontation with Truman back during the Korean War. Again, underneath the surface, it can be ugly and dishonest, but on the surface, everybody salutes and says, yes, the civilians are in charge, the generals advise, and then they follow orders. I fear uh, that installing generals in positions that usually, not always, uh, are reserved for civilians can, whether intentionally or not, uh, undermine that basic principle. And that would not be a good thing. I, th I don't believe that the appointments that Trump has made in and of themselves compromise the principle, but it's a step in the wrong direction. Hey, this is Larry Website, the Duke's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for the Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best enough emerge. Back to the show. Stepping back to the eight years prior to Trump, Obama won the presidency in, I think, not insignificant part because of his criticism of the invasion of Iraq. Um, but once in office, he continued and even expanded the global war on terror that was already in place. What do you make of Obama's track record and what do you think he set out to do, and why do you think he ended up pursuing the policies that, that he did? Well, let's remember what he promised. What he promised was, he, I mean, basically, he, he ran and he said, elect me president, and I will end the Iraq war, and I will win the Afghanistan war. And I think there were many people at the time, and I would include myself in their number, who who believed that his... Afghanistan statement was made in order to protect himself, as Democrats feel obliged to do, from being uh, depicted as a wimp on national Soft security. on terrorism and weak. Soft on war. <laughs> you know, George McGovern again. So, so that was his platform. He runs, he wins, and he made good on, the, uh, on, on, on ending the Iraq war. Uh, alas, uh, he also tried to make good on Afghanistan, uh, and it simply didn't pan out. Uh, so we have uh, a, an Afghanistan surge uh, that occurs in uh, 2010, mostly, uh, that uh, un undertaken really guided by the same argument that uh, informed the, the Petraeus surge in Iraq, uh, that is to say that counterinsurgency was going to turn things around, uh, and, it, and it didn't. I, I believe that uh, Obama learned from that. Uh, he, 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 he developed a, uh, an acute sensitivity toward the large-scale use of force, uh, but, he, but, he, but he replaced that. He, you know, he, he, he backed away from boots on the ground in favor of 
targeted assassination. I mean, to, to put it in the, in the bluntest terms. Why, why did that happen? I think it happened because he, he and his administration failed to devise an alternative to the global war on terrorism, or maybe perhaps I should say an, alter, an, an approach to dealing with the problem of violent jihadism that would enable him to to frame to 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 frame his approach as something other than more war. So what we got with Obama was more war, a continuation of the war, although the war looked differently. Uh, as we discussed earlier, casualties went down, uh, but the killing continued, and as measured by political outcomes, uh, the results achieved by Obama were no better than the results achieved by his predecessor. And in a sense, it seems, by bringing American casualties down and making it ever more of a remote control drone war um, and really thus insulating Americans from the reality of the global war on terror it seems like he really solidified its its path dependent permanence. I think so. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that was not his intention, um, but I think at the end of the day, that's what we got. You said um, another really interesting thing that you just pointed out was how um, the pledge to end the Iraq War was accompanied by a promise to win the war in Afghanistan because Democrats are always concerned that they're going to be tarred as weak on national security by Republican hawks. And I think this is a really key premise of of, of, of liberal Democratic foreign policy thinking since 9-11, which is that the Afghanistan war was the righteous war um, because the Taliban were protecting al-Qaeda, whereas the Iraq war was the the bad war, as John Kerry put it in 2004, that George W. Bush had taken the eye off the, his eye off the ball mm-hmm. by invading Iraq when he should have been getting things done in Afghanistan. But it, And it seems to me that this... Um, this premise amongst uh, liberal Democrats that the Afghanistan war was the good war, um, that until people on the left wrestle with this and think about how doomed to failure overthrowing the Taliban government was from the get-go, that we can never really have a serious conversation about ending the war on terror as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I myself... uh I'm still in the camp uh, that uh, would argue that we needed to punish the Taliban. We didn't. We needed to punish the Taliban because they had provided sanctuary to bin Laden and refused to cough him up after 9/11. More broadly, we needed to punish the Taliban in order to make the point that any regime that harbors terrorists who are planning attacks on the United States is going to pay a heavy price. That said, I mean, again, so I supported that. I supported the entry of U.S. forces into Afghanistan. Uh, That said, I don't have any great ideas uh, about 
what to do now, 16 years later. So there was this case for the justness of the invasion of Afghanistan, but it sort of displaced any sort of idea about what the purpose um, of the invasion was and what sort of strategy would achieve that purpose. The purpose was to make the point uh, that any regime that uh, provides sanctuary to anti-American terrorists is going to rue the day. Uh, the problem is that that doesn't provide a statement of purpose that is relevant to the continuation of the war all these many years later. I mean, as I understand it, uh, those who are trying to justify the continuation of the war justify it by saying, well, that's where the 9-11 attacks came from, uh, which seems to imply that we therefore have to stay in Afghanistan forever. When the fact of the matter is, Afghanistan is by no means uh, the only place on earth where we can find anti-American terrorists. I mean, if 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 we have to if we have to maintain U.S. forces anywhere where anti-American terrorists can uh, find a home, then I guess we're going to have to occupy what Libya, Yemen, Somalia. I mean, Saudi the Arabia. List, the list, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the list goes. The list goes on and on. So, and I wish I. I mean, I, w- I wish I had a, 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 a clear answer myself. I don't. Uh, but the war no longer has any real purpose, uh, and and yet it goes on, uh, and 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 it goes on with surprisingly little willingness uh, to to grapple with its fundamental aimlessness at this point. Do you think that there could have been some sort of response to September 11th in Afghanistan short of regime regime change? Because it seems like once regime change happens, then you're dealing with the sort of chaos um, and violence that then justifies ongoing permanent U.S. intervention. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I must say, I, I, I simply uh, don't know. I, I think it was necessarily to undertake some type of punitive action. You know, in the midst of the punitive action, would it have been possible to make an approach to the Taliban and, and say, "Hey, have you guys learned your lesson now? Uh, you know, will, will, will you will you give us your assurances that there will be no more uh, Taliban or excuse me, uh, Al Qaeda training camps?" In Afghanistan, uh, and, and would that then have allowed us to uh, disengage uh, without having overthrown the regime? I, I don't know. That might have been a, a way to, to to back out, but of course, that's all water over the dam now. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, so, l- listeners um, who are less familiar with your work might not know this, but you identify as a political conservative. And that might not be obvious to listeners because um, you share a lot of the critique that's that's common on the more on the more radical anti-imperialist left. How, as a conservative um, critic of 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 U.S. empire, though, would you distinguish your critique from that which prevails on the left? I don't know that I would. I mean, 
to, to some degree, the way you pose the question seems to suggest that people who are conservatives are necessarily imperialists. Uh, I don't mean that you said that out explicitly, but it's kind of underlying the question. And I myself would take issue with that. Uh, I think that there are, and part, part of the problem I think here in, in this kind of a conversation is, at least in my view, uh, about 80% of the people out there in the political world who call themselves conservatives aren't conservative. I don't know what the hell they are, uh, but, but principled <laughs> conservatives, uh, in, in my mind, uh, are very wary of war uh, because they appreciate the extent to which uh, war is difficult to control. Uh, to my mind, uh, conservatives are not anti-soldier. I mean, they are appreciative of people who serve the country, but they are wary of military institutions, uh, which are not necessarily friendly to liberal values, to democratic uh, values. To my mind, conservatives are wary of utopian claims, uh, are skeptical, to go back to near the beginning of the conversation, are skeptical of, of the notion that we are God's chosen instrument. Uh, to bring salvation uh, to the world. Uh, and so those of us who are of a genuinely conservative uh, temperament um, ju just are, are, are cautious uh, when it comes to all matters related to the military. So this sort of buccaneering attitude that prevails in some parts of the Republican Party, you know, the bellicosity, the the jingoism, uh, there certainly is a is a pretty pronounced tradition for all of that in our politics. But I don't I don't think it qualifies as conservative. That's what I'd say. So and so people on the on the left uh, who also uh, are wary of war, who are wary of military institutions, who who, who kind of view uh, unnecessary spending on weaponry as really a waste of money, money that could be used for more productive purposes. Uh, I'm with them. Now, if I'm having a conversation with those liberals or those progressives, we might disagree on how to spend the money that we save by not wasting it on the Pentagon. Uh, and, and to my mind... That's a discussion or, or a debate that uh, is really worth having. I wish our politics was more was more devoted to that uh, rather than to um, furthering or, or accepting uh, the the militarized consensus that seems to be at the sort of un, unspoken center of our politics. Andrew Basevich, thank you so much. Well, thank you.
Andrew Basevich is the author, co-author, editor of a dozen books, including American Empire, The New American Militarism, and, most recently, America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, sometimes twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews actually do help introduce us to new listeners. Also, please find us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. And make a monthly donation. Even a little bit goes a long way.